0: They didn't pay their fines. Putting forward legislation that holds offenders accountable violate the constitution, limits liberty and security. Today, the, Supreme the, Supreme the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada decision granting Canadians the rights that she was denied. This is Justice Radio, Acumen Law Corporation's podcast. It's July 16th, 1960. Seven-year-old Roger Woodward had become the first person to fall over Niagara Falls and survive. The Montreal Canadiens were basking in the glory of a fifth consecutive Stanley Cup. And somewhere in BC, Johannes Shrivers was speeding down the highway. Perhaps he was in a hurry, or maybe he just wanted to feel the rush of summer wind in his hair, but Mr. Shriver's was gunning it, doing 30 over the speed limit. We're talking miles per hour here, totally oblivious to the part he was about to play in Canadian legal history. As Mr. Shriver's car hurtled down the road, it wasn't long before he attracted some unwanted attention. A police officer spotted Mr. Shrivers and pulled him over. According to the constable who stopped the car, when he asked the male driver behind the wheel what his name was, he replied, Johannes Shrivers. A driver's license was also produced bearing the same name. The driver was charged with speeding and issued a speeding ticket. Mr. Shrivers disputed his ticket. At the trial, he pleaded not guilty. He also chose not to give any testimony to support his innocence. And he didn't call any evidence to support his case. The magistrate presiding over the trial duly convicted him of speeding. An open and shut case, or so the Crown thought, but Mr. Shrivers wasn't going to take this lying down. You see, during the trial, the constable had been unable to identify the accused as the male driver he had previously pulled over, hence gifting Mr. Shrivers a lifeline. So Mr. Shrivers snatched this chance and lodged an appeal to B.C. Supreme Court. When it came to his appeal, Mr. Schreiber submitted that because the officer could not identify him in court, there was therefore no evidence he had been the driver that fateful July day. If the constable didn't know for sure it was him, then there was no legal basis to support the magistrate's finding that he was the one behind the wheel, and the conviction should therefore be overturned. All he had to do was stick to his shaggy defense. All he had to do was say, it wasn't me. Without saying it. After all, it's up to the prosecution to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's up to the prosecution to establish that the driver had been identified. If the officer couldn't even say for sure, the man in the dock was the one he pulled over, that's a reasonable doubt. Unfortunately for Mr. Shrivers, the Supreme Court judge didn't see it this way at all and the appeal was dismissed. The judge's reasons for doing this require some mental mathematics, but here we go. At the earlier trial, if the defendant had, in fact, not been the one the police officer pulled over for speeding, he would have had access to that information, to those relevant facts to refute the Crown's case. Since Mr. Shrivers had opted not to provide testimony, The Supreme Court judge interpreted this to mean that it was up to him to argue against the Crown's evidence and prove it wasn't him. So the onus of proof that he was not the driver shifted to him. Maybe. This case, which originated from a routine speeding ticket, had far-reaching consequences on law enforcement that are still being felt today. Any members of the police force listening in BC will be familiar with the name Mr. Shrivers. Everyone else, you might not know it but this case provides an important lesson about your rights as a driver. Anytime an officer pulls over a driver they suspect of an infraction, they do what is known in police circles as the Shriver's Test. The Shriver's Test or the Shriver's Process is a checklist used to assist officers in properly identifying the driver in a Motor Vehicle Act investigation. If you have been stopped for a traffic violation, you are under no obligation to engage in conversation. So you don't have to answer potentially incriminating questions like, Do you know why I pulled you over? Or, Do you know how fast you were going? However, as a direct result of this case, you must do these three things. Present your driver's license, state your name, and state your address correctly. That's it. The Schreiber's case established the principle of it being the driver's responsibility to assist the officer in case the evidence should later be relied on in court. Little is known about what happened to Johannes Schreiber after his trial. An obituary for someone with the same name appeared in the province in 2013. It describes a Second World War POW and great-grandfather of 13 who was outgoing, talented, and successful. The obituary says he was born in 1923. That would make him about 37 years old in 1960, the year our Johannes Schreiber was pulled over. Maybe this information helps identify him as the same Johannes Schreiber in the obituary. Maybe it doesn't. But just like the enigma at the center of the Shriver's trial, there's simply no way to know for sure. So basically the Shriver's process, if done lawfully, is the police officer asking the driver to fulfill their obligations under the Motor Vehicle Act. So if you're a driver on a highway, and you're pulled over or otherwise in contact with the police, they can ask for your license, ask for your name, ask for your address, and you are required to respond correctly. And that's sufficient to identify you. If you dispute the ticket, it is presumed you were properly identified if the officer properly employed the Shriver's test. Why does this matter and when does it come into play? It's not uncommon for self-represented accused or young lawyers to want to run an ID defense in court. Proving ID is an essential element of most traffic tickets. Mr. Jones, are you aware that your client was properly identified in this matter by a Shriver's test? That's not to say you can't run an ID defense, you just need to be careful about how you go about doing it. Every police officer in BC has been trained to ask the Shriver's questions. What happens in circumstances where they don't do it correctly? What happens when their training is wrong? What is the extent to which the information obtained may be used? These are questions that are addressed on a case-by-case basis. And of course, the Shriver's precedent came decades before the Charter of Rights, so there are circumstances where the answers to the questions, and even the test itself, may be inadmissible. The Shriver's case is so deeply ingrained in our justice system here in BC that we don't normally ask these questions. And certainly, as the law develops, more questions about the applicability of the Shriver's test should arise. As they do, when we're fighting for justice.